Hello, this is Mike Kozenko, and thank you for joining us today on another podcast. Today, we're fortunate to be joined by Rosa Brooks, law professor at Georgetown University, senior fellow at the New America Foundation, ace columnist at foreignpolicy.com. Rosa teaches, researches, and writes on a wide range of national security, rule of law, and human rights issues. She also held senior positions at the State Department and the Pentagon, and by reputation, I would say, is one of the absolute most respected and honest voices about the state and conduct of the U.S. military. You can and should follow her on Twitter at Brooks underscore Rosa. That's at Brooks underscore Rosa. And you can find all of her publications by Googling Rosa Brooks, or even easier, just going to rosabrooks.com. Rosa, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's terrific to be here, Micah. So the first one we want to talk about is your excellent new book, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, Tales from the Pentagon, which is just out with Simon & Schuster. If you listen to this podcast, you've probably read the book, but if you haven't, I highly recommend that you buy it and absorb it. It is like a buffet for the eyes. You don't just pick it up and read it and put it down. You digest it. You go back to parts over and over again. Um, so first, I just want to compliment you on writing such an excellent book that describes and captures some of what the military does in a way that I've never read before. Well, thank you. That's very, very kind of you. <laughs> no, and I mean it. And you've written about, you know, such a thoughtful and smart ways about national security and military policy for so long. So the first question I have is a, always an interested book author is, how did you approach this narrative and this style, and how did you sell it to a publisher? <laughs> um, you know, I, my first draft of the book proposal read sort of like a law review article, but a really good law review article. And my agent, uh, who's been my agent for many, many years, um, sort of snickered a little bit at me gently and said, you know, go back to the drawing board, start again, tell some personal stories. You can't just talk about uh, the rule of law and how important the rule of law is because no one will read this. And so I said, I don't want to add personal stories. This is not a book about me. This is not a memoir. And she said, go back and put in some personal <laughs> stories. and um, <laughs> So I grudgingly came back with, you know, one little personal story, and, you know, we went back and forth like that for a while. Um, and she, 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 she had to persuade me against all my policy wonk and legal academic instincts that, you know, it was okay to talk a bit more anecdotally. And I, I it made me a little bit uncomfortable because I do feel like this, the book is not about me. Um, and it, it made me a little uncomfortable when some readers and reviewers are sort of focused on the personal mm -hmm. stories. But I, I get where she's coming from, and, and uh, I, I should say, um, when I met with the Simon & Schuster publicity team uh, before the book came out, the president of Simon & Schuster said to me, this book is so great, I love it. And I was like, oh, thank you. And, and he said, you know what, that law stuff, could you, you know... <laughs> Maybe you could cut that a little bit. And I thought, no, I can't cut that a little bit. And he said, and your bio. He said, I, I love it. You're such an interesting story. But I'm a little worried. Every time we use the phrase law professor, I'm afraid we sell five fewer books. Um, so I said, that's just a hobby. Just a hobby. Right. So, yeah. So <laughs> I don't know if that, that remotely answers your question. But. but the anecdotes all work because they're used to frame and reference something which you then expand upon at a larger point. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I'm 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 pretty happy overall about where it came out. 
Um, and what I really did not want to do, and because there, there are plenty of them, and I wasn't interested in doing this, and I don't think the world needs more of this, is write a kind of a gossipy book about, mm-hmm. you know, a tell-all about, well, and then Bob Gates said such and such, and then so-and-so said, here's what I think of Bob Gates, and then so-and-so said, here's what I think of so-and-so thinking that about Bob Gates, you know. Um, and, and you know, I, I think readers who look in the book for sort of juicy gossip about, about people you know, are not going to find it. I hope it is and comes across as a book that does tell interesting stories that I hope will draw people in, but it's, it's a book about issues and it's a book about ideas, uh, first and foremost. And the gossip is actually institutionally based, like the story I love where a White House staffer calls you to have some predator drone redirected from some mission to Kyrgyzstan. So you don't have to reveal who the person is, but that's sort of the way civilians sometimes ask the military to do things, and it's such a tactical one-off way. I, I love that story. Well, it's this funny combination of viewing the military as, as really being almost magical, having sort of magical ability to do anything anywhere, uh, combined with a real mistrust of the military and a suspicion that the military can do anything anywhere, and therefore, if it doesn't do what you want to do, it's, it's because, it's, you know, the military is out to thwart mm-hmm. your agenda, whatever your agenda is. And, and yeah, I mean, this, this, this story, this is actually, and this is not a story about anybody behaving badly or, or being an idiot, but, but this was back in 2010 when there was uh, uh, ethnic violence in Kyrgyzstan and, and a guy from the, on the national security staff, um, you know, terrific guy, really smart really creative guy called me and said, Rosa, you know, we've got this great idea. Um, we want to get a drone over Kyrgyzstan to see what's going on over there. And, and this is actually a really creative idea in the sense that, you know, if you can get footage of things like uh, where are trucks full of soldiers and police moving? Uh, right. And is, has the dirt been disturbed? Is there a new mass grave? You know, that maybe you can figure out what's going to happen, atrocities that might be in the works but haven't happened yet, and you can prevent it. So it's, it's, it's a really good idea. The only problem was he sort of said, can you call Central Command and, you know, tell them to get a drone there? And, and I sort of said, you know, I, I <laughs> no, I can't. Um, that's not the way it works. You know, I don't have the authority to order a drone. I'm a mid-level civilian in the policy shop of the Office of Secretary of Defense. I, I'm not in the military chain of command. You don't have the authority to tell me to do that. You don't have the authority to tell the military. You know, the president has the authority to tell the Secretary of Defense to tell the, you know, right. uh, but that's the way it works. And, and he was very frustrated and irritated and sort of thought this is just kind of bureaucratic stonewalling and the Defense Department doesn't care about atrocity prevention. And I get why, from the perspective of somebody sitting in the White House, this seems like this opaque and mysterious bureaucracy that is just preventing you from following up on a good idea. But obviously, from the military perspective, there isn't an infinite supply of drones. There was in the middle of the war in Afghanistan. They were kind of pretty busy with the ones that we had. Uh, Whose airspace are you going to fly over? Who's going to fly it? With what money? What if it gets shot down? What's the legal risk? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Are you flying over a sovereign country? Can you do that? But there are all these issues, uh, both that had to do with the chain of command and the, the complexities that I think very few civilians are, are placed to appreciate, because why would they? They don't, you right. know, why would they have ever thought of it? And so if you couldn't just email, I think it would have been David Petraeus at that time and asked him. <laughs> Dear Dave, <laughs> please send one drone, yeah. And, and, ta- uh, and, ta- and talk about your, I mean, you come, you come to, the, to the book with such a unique uh, experiences and perspectives, both as a, uh, you know, a totally respected scholar, as a lawyer, um, army spouse, uh, 
you know, all these different perspectives, human rights advocate. When you came to the Pentagon, obviously you knew about it from other, I mean, writing about this stuff, but what surprised you with the day-to-day -day ins and outs of policymaking in the Pentagon? You know, one thing that surprised me, I, I had both good surprises and, and bad surprises. I mean, one surprise was that, you know, I'm someone who comes from a human rights background, and, and a lot of my friends said, oh, it must be so difficult to do human rights stuff at the Pentagon, uh, compared to, for instance, the State Department, where I had worked at the end of the Bill Clinton administration. And, in fact, it was the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, at the State Department, it's extraordinarily hard to do human rights work or anything for that matter, because I think the State Department has about 80 uh, Senate-confirmed political appointees, and none of them think they work for any of the others. <laughs> right. And so if you want any decision requires buy-in from about, you know, 75 of the 80, which is extraordinarily hard to get. Uh, at the Pentagon, there's actually, despite the much greater scale of the Defense Department in terms of employees, budget, and everything else, there's actually a smaller number of Senate-confirmed appointees, and it's a very rigid hierarchy. So if you can get one of the top two or three people to say, hey, good idea, everybody else says, yes, ma'am. Right. Um, so in fact, having, you know, working on those issues with the support of my, my, my then boss, Michelle Flournoy, uh, who was a terrific boss and the Undersecretary of Policy, meant that, that, you know, I said, oh, I think we should do this, and everybody said, that's a, how can I help? <laughs> Which was, that was a very pleasant surprise. Um, I, I think the other two big surprises uh, one negative had to do with the same issues that you raised in, in asking about the sort of Kyrgyzstan drone anecdote. The degree to which often military personnel and civilians at the White House or state seem to be kind of speaking different languages and mm -hmm. just really talking past each other in ways that often caused significant ill-feeling and misunderstanding, even though nobody was wrong, but, but just the... the the culture and language gap and just meaning, even words meaning different things. You know, what does it mean to plan? That means something right. quite different to the State Department versus the military. Um, and the way in which that caused slowdowns, foul-ups, and bad feeling was, was really somewhat shocking to me. Uh, and then I guess the other thing that was, was I sort of knew going in, but, but really nonetheless was amazing to see in person is just exactly how vast mm -hmm. the... Defense Department world is, and you pick any issue, you know, pick a social science research topic, pick a, pick a country, pick a problem, and someone in DOD is working on it. Uh, you know, human trafficking in the Philippines, some little piece of Pacific Command is working on it. Uh, sexual violence in the Congo, uh, DOD is funding researchers to figure out how to stop it. You know, you name it, somebody's doing it, whether it's sort of cattle vaccination or soap operas or or more traditional, you know, things we think of more traditionally as, as military operations, somebody somewhere is doing it. It's, it's just astonishing. Right. And w one of the interesting things about the book is you make this, one of my favorite lines of the book is you say, fundamentally the U.S. military is and will continue to be a product of our culture and our collective decisions. You know, so much of the book is about demystifying the military and making people mm -hmm. aware of what it does day in, day out. Do you see the public engagement that you would like to see, uh, or or even on Capitol Hill, to really understand what the military does in our name? Not really. Yeah, I mean, not not really. And and a lot has been written, and a lot of it, sort of hand wringing stuff, has been written about uh, the cultural gap between the military and and civilians, and 
It's a lot of hand-wringing about how only, you know, less than 1% of the population serves in the military, and isn't that terrible? And on the one hand, I think that can be really overstated and made to seem a much bigger problem than it is. You know, mm -hmm. for most of American history, we've had a very small, highly professionalized military, uh, and very few uh, Americans have been involved in it directly. That, that World War II, we, we've come to think of World War II as sort of the good old days, which right. appeared on multiple levels. Um, but, you know, the, the mass army having, you know, one in ten people in the military, that was that was totally aberrational. And it's not going to be like that again, we sincerely hope. It's not going to be that way again unless there's a world war, and we really don't want a world war. You know, that, that it does have the side effect of meaning that lots of people know what's going on in the military and feel qualified to comment on it and be knowledgeable and engaged, but that's not a great way to get there. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think that the, the problem is inherently one about not enough people serve. Um, I think that the problem is that in the last 15 years, we've sort of steadily expanded what issues we look at through the lens of war and what issues we view as being military tasks. Mm -hmm. And that has huge implications just across the board. It has implications, legal implications, it has implications for institutions, it has budgetary implications, it has international relations implications. And when the military is doing more and more, of more and more significance to the fate of the nation, if, if not to over-dramatize, that's when it starts being a problem right. if not very many civilians know much about it or, or can talk about it intelligently or, or, ask, or ask hard questions. Right. I mean, there's also implications there about how the military is used. And I'm going to ask you here to put your legal, uh, your law professor title back in play. I, I don't want to do that because <laughs> nobody's going to buy the book. <laughs> well, th hopefully they've already, got, they've already bought the book and enjoyed it. But we're now, the United States is now fighting these fights that blur the line between uh, traditional war, non-battlefield settings, uh, shaping stability peace operations, and there's an absence of clarifying legal framework to some of these sorts of activities, and a lot of people now sort of ad hoc pile on what they've known before from the legal field. I mean, you teach this to aspiring people who are going to go work at the State Department legal office or in the uh, legal departments in the, in the Pentagon or the services. How do you help uh, your students think about what legal framework should apply? Because there may be just this, the case that there will be no sort of existing realized body of law that you can refer to for some of what the United States is deciding to do. No, in fact, that's the challenge that I, I put to my students. You know, I, I say we have a legal framework that in many ways is anachronistic, um, and it's up to you guys to fix it, <laughs> um, because I think there are areas where we, we do need new laws. I mean, uh, to take just one of the most obvious and easy examples, take cyber conflict and cyberspace. It just doesn't fit. Right. any of our existing legal frameworks, because the law of armed conflict assumes that law takes place in, in physical space, um, and that weapons and destruction involve physical objects, and that combatants are physical people, you know, and, and the opportunities as we are discovering more and more with every passing week for nations, organizations, or even individuals to cause tremendous mischief Mm -hmm. uh, through cyber attacks of various kinds is, is enormous, and yet we really have, we don't even really have a vocabulary, a legal vocabulary for, for sort of thinking about that. Um, and, and that's going to require, you know, an exercise in, in legal creativity 
to not just keep shoehorning things into existing categories that don't fit very well, but to come up with, you know, what should the rules be? What set of rules enables us to both act effectively against real threats in cyberspace while being consistent with our values? And I'm pretty sure the way we get there is not just by jamming everything into anachronistic categories, but rather by sort of starting from scratch and saying, how do we want this space to be governed? How do we want our activities in this space to be governed? You know, how do you create checks and balances in that universe and so forth? It's funny because it's also happening in the policy sphere where people are saying, we'll just do deterrence like we've always done deterrence. One of the other things that I like about the book is you raise attention to challenges and you don't point out clear-cut solutions to many of them because... Well, I'm glad you thought that was a good thing. <laughs> I do, I do, because I work at a, at, a, at a polite centrist think tank where, you know, coming up with concrete, actionable policy recommendations are the must-to-do, and even reading the book, like, I could think about existing people who have written about this, like the great Project for National Security Reform, which is now 10 years old, if you, you know, dusted that off the shelves and applied some of it to uh, the book, you would see some of these problems being ameliorated to some extent. But w w when people read the book, you know, what do you tell them uh, can or should be done? I mean, what are a few things you recommend, even if not their actionable policies, but just approaches and ways to think about the problem? I mean, it's funny because when I was circulating drafts of the manuscript to various uh, friends and colleagues, one of the, the criticisms that I got, uh, especially in, in early drafts, was, well, at the end, you need to tell us what to do. Right. And, and, and I kept saying, but I don't know what to do, <laughs> you know, because these things are hard, you know, and my job is not to tell you what to do. My job is, you know, I want to I point out how hard this is and inspire other people to figure out what to do and to argue about it and fight about it and experiment and so on. And in the end, I, I did, you know, I, I, took, I took those criticisms sufficiently seriously that I did put some sections in on, you know, some areas where I thought concrete, things could be done, but I, but I sort of resisted turning it into, you know, and now here are 10, right. 10 things to do tomorrow. Congress should do, you know. But that being said, on that, you know, on the one hand, some, some of the issues that the book tries to grapple with, you know, they're just really hard. It's going to be the work of generations to figure out, you know, how we should think about war in an era in which borders don't matter as much as they once did and states don't matter as much mm -hmm. as they once did and so forth. You know, that's, I don't think there's some you know, quick fix um, at all. Uh, I, uh, that, that being said, I think there are a lot of hard problems the book raises, but there are also some that people like to pretend are really hard but are actually pretty easy. And take one example of something that, that you've written about a lot as well, Micah, which is uh, U.S. targeted strikes, you know, more colloquially drone strikes. Um, that's that's an area where where the book talks about this a fair amount. There, I think there are really profound rule of law problems with mm -hmm. the current U.S. practices. Most notably, at the moment, uh, you know, regardless of how robust our internal processes are, we're saying to the world, um, a powerful country can kill people anywhere based on its own assessment of the need and based on secret evidence evaluated in a secret process, and we won't even acknowledge when we've killed people. And I don't think we want to live in a world in which every state says, yeah, that sounds like a good theory. I'm going to act on it, too. And when you raise all these issues, people, people go, oh, but it's so difficult, and it's an armed conflict, and you can't have a court on the battlefield. And, and I think most of the objections to having a, a, a process with more external checks and balances and more transparency are frankly just bullshit. It's not that hard. You know, you, you have, I have, a dozen other people have put forward – 
you know, perfectly easy to implement ideas that would involve either some sort of judicial review or some sort of blue ribbon commission and much greater transparency about number of strikes and approximate locations and summaries of reasons. And I think I think all of that is totally doable without revealing intelligence sources and methods. Um, and the people who say it's not are just full of it, frankly. Right. You know, so some stuff is actually not that hard. Right, right, right. You'd have to you have to deal with the consciousness raising about why it makes a difference about the transparency and accountability you put to them, um, and that's the first step. And that's, I mean, at least that's what the book does. So then, once you've once you've absorbed the book, you can then think about concrete um, recommendations. Just two two more quick questions. We were really lucky to talk to the wonderful Corey Shockey and Peter Fever uh, earlier in podcast and. One of the things that have come up, obviously, is the use and abuse of the military in the election campaign. Having, you know, General John Allen being introduced at the Democratic Convention or General Mike Flynn introduced at the Republican Convention, um, because these are individuals who have a degree of respect that is perceived of as nonpartisan and above politics, but then being employed for political gain. Um, yeah. Talk about the, the way the military has been used in the elections. I, I actually have kind of mixed feelings on this and, and disagree a little bit with, with my my good friends Peter and Corey. Um, on the one hand, uh, you know, I, if, if, uh, if Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump could actually wear our troops as like a sort of human lapel pin, they would. You know, um, I thought it was just, it was absurd and embarrassing, you know, the sort of moment in one of the, one of the, uh, you know, town halls when, you know, Trump said, I have, you know, 86 generals have signed right. a letter supporting me. And Hillary Clinton's people immediately said, well, you know, Hillary Clinton has 92 generals is is absurd. And, you know, they're, they're taking advantage of the fact that Americans do have a tremendous amount of, of trust and confidence in the military, much more than any other public institution. And trying to kind of, you know, wrap themselves uh, in the in the military flag, uh, to give themselves a sort of borrowed credibility, and that's 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 absurd. And we should not pretend that, you know, I, I don't care how many generals somebody right. had, you know, that 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 shouldn't be what matters. Uh, we should be evaluating people independently based on their proposals, not on whether they can dredge up a bunch of people who used to have stars on their shoulder to sign a letter for them. Um, that that said, I'm I'm much less troubled than than. You know, Corey and Peter are by the phenomenon of, of retired military personnel getting involved in, in, in partisan politics. I, I think that the notion that the military, the military, the active duty military, as, as you know, professionals are pledged to be apolitical. I think the military's done a great job of internalizing that. Sure. You know, that, that you, you obey the commander in chief. You, you don't say, well, no, because I don't really like you because you're a Democrat or you're a Republican or whatever it may be. But, but I think that, um, number one, you know, it, you know, retired service members are their citizens. They don't give right. up their free speech rights. Um, and the idea that the military should be somehow above or outside of politics strikes me as frankly kind of weird. You know, what are wars and how we use force? Uh, that is the fundamental, most vital issue about which, about which we have politics. Mm -hmm. You know, how can you take that out of the political arena and sort of say that that's off limits and we don't want to know what you guys think? You know, I mean, it's, I, I think that the, the sort of fantasy that we can somehow take these decisions outside the realm of politics completely 
is is a fantasy and would not would not necessarily put us in a in a better place. I would rather have uh, retired generals or admirals saying, you know, here's what I think, here's why, mm-hmm. uh, and and also having us feel like we also get to say to them that's bullshit or that makes no sense to me. And, you know, there shouldn't be any kind of automatic deference of, wow, you once had a star on your shoulder, therefore you must be right about everything, even if, in fact, you have no personal experience on X or Y. Um, so we should, be, we should be critical, but I would rather have them be engaged. Right. So last question. This is a question we ask everybody. And uh, if you could go back in time and talk to the younger uh, version of you in grad school or some equivalent, and, and this gets to what you tell students today, you know, what sort of advice do you give to young people who want to work in this sphere, don't quite know what they're working on, are interested in these sort of topics? I mean, what do you tell people? How do you tell them to approach it? Gosh, um, I usually tell people not to be so fixated on, on planning that they don't leave plenty of room for serendipity and and in particular to not be so fixated on planning their next move that they stifle their own their own instincts whether those are their moral instincts or their creative instincts or 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 both um i think that um even in a world as cynical as washington's um people value honesty and they value creativity and one thing i sort of breaks my heart to see a lot of of young people doing is thinking, oh, I, I have to only voice the party line of, mm-hmm. of, of whatever little sub-tribe I belong to. You know, if I'm, if I'm a democratic foreign policy person, then I cannot deviate from this very narrow band of opinion. You know, and we all think that Syria is very complicated and nothing can be <laughs> done or whatever it may be. You know, or I'm a Republican, you know, I have to say these things. I think there are lots of pressures on people, and particularly, you know, if you're at a, either in a government position, you have to censor yourself. If you're at a think tank, lots of people want to get into government positions, so they start censoring themselves in advance, mm-hmm. you know, or they want to get back into one, so they censor themselves. And, and I don't think that's in the long run. I mean, I think that's one of those things that I get why people do it, but I think it's a mistake. I think in the long run, you know, you end up being more respected if not, not you know, not if you're just a jerk and you're you're obnoxious to everybody right. or you're you're kind of you know wild and crazy, loose cannon. But but you know, if you're if you're honest, even when you're deviating from the party line, I don't actually believe in the long run that that hurts people's careers. It may mean that you lose the next job, but it may mean that the job after that is an even better and more interesting one. You know, so I, I would sort of say to people, stop being so worried on not offending anybody important. You know, you should try not to offend people out of general common courtesy and, you know, be respectful of other people's opinions and feelings. But that does not mean, you know, you shouldn't be independent of mind, because in the long run, that'll, that'll, that'll help you more than just parroting what you think everybody wants you to say. And you'll be able to live with yourself. <laughs> Yeah, that's always a plus, too. Just not a bad thing. Um, Wow, this has been an excellent discussion, and I want to thank you again so much. And I just want to tell everybody one last time, please go check out Rose's book, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, Tales from the Pentagon. It's out right now with Simon & Schuster. It's a great, fun read. Rosa, thank you so much for joining us today. Micah, thanks so much for having me.